Well, let's go ahead and pray one more time before we get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, we gather together now to hear of you, to hear from you, to be examined by your word, to be examined by your spirit. And oh, Lord God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you give us judgment day clarity as to how we live our life, how we walk day to day. Would you be among us, Lord, for the glory of your name and for the sanctification of your body? It is in your name we pray. Amen. What we have before us this afternoon a very well-known passage. I would assume that you can ask anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time to quote this passage, and they would likely be able to do it. And as well-known as this passage is, we must still allow the Word of God to search us. We must not so easily say, I do these things, but we must examine ourselves and ask ourselves, do we do these things? We must hold our feet to the fire, as it were, and examine ourselves with the passage that is before us. So what is exactly before us? Well, we encounter here something of a transitional point in this letter. Prior to this, Paul has laid out and developed a thorough theological exposition of what we could call the realities of the gospel. The gospel and the ramifications thereof are the theme around which this letter is built. This is even what we see established at the beginning of the letter, in Romans 1.1, we read, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It is the proclamation of the gospel for which Paul had been set apart. And then we see in Romans 1.15 that it is this very gospel that Paul is eager to preach to those in Rome. And finally, Romans 1.16 We see it as the gospel that is the very power of God unto salvation. We read there, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it is from this point forward that Paul presents us with the glory of the gospel, the the transforming power of the gospel. Namely, that through the Father's electing love, the Son's obedience in His life, His obedience in His death, and the power of His resurrection, and through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in us, we have been set free from the devastating power and effects of sin. We have been set free from the bondage to sin, and we have now been enabled, we've been enabled to live lives that are well-pleasing to God. And the question we will continually come back to 
is are we doing this? And it is at this point with the phrase, therefore I urge you brethren, that Paul transitions from what we could call gospel indicatives to gospel imperatives. That is, here are the things that are as a result of the gospel in the first 11 chapters. And therefore, here's the command now. Here's the exhortation as to how we ought to live in light of these things that are, these indicatives. This indicative imperative combination is something that we see quite often in Paul's letters. For example, we see it in Ephesians where the first three chapters are really indicative-based, and then the last three chapters are imperative-based. And we also see it in Colossians. The first two chapters are more indicative-based, and the last two are primarily uh, imperative-based. Well, it's the same here in Romans. It doesn't mean that there hasn't been any practical application up to chapter 12. It just means now that there is a switch from a primarily theological exposition of what is to now how we ought to walk. Paul begins a set of practical exhortations here at chapter 1 or chapter 12 verse 1 uh, that have to do with the duty, the responsibility and To be straightforward, the requirement, it's not an option, this is a requirement of all who name the name of Christ. It is the requirement of progressive sanctification in our life. As many of you have likely heard, uh, in the Sunday School series recently completed on the imitation of Christ, I said this over and over. If you name the name of Christ, if you lay claim to knowing Him, if you claim that these gospel indicatives are yours then here we see an inherent responsibility. There's no naming the name of Christ and then living like the world. There is an obligation for you now as to how you live your life. You must live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. To believe the gospel means a life committed to faith, obedience, and the pursuit of holiness. And so with this, therefore, I urge you, brethren, Paul reaches all the way back, not just to the prior chapter, not just to chapter 9, but he reaches all the way back. This is an all-encompassing therefore that goes all the way to Romans 1.16 in which he makes that glorious statement about the gospel being the very power of God unto salvation. And it includes all of the wonderful theological exposition that we see in the book. And it culminates in that great doxological praise we see at the end of chapter 11 where he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Up to this point, Paul has put all these glorious truths of the gospel and the Trinitarian purpose of salvation on display and says, Therefore, in light of these truths, even these mercies, This is how you ought to live. This is even what we sang in My Life is an Offering. It was because of what you've done. My life is an offering. Paul doesn't just provide deep theological doctrine that is to be believed as if that was sufficient enough, as if all that's all that matters. 
Don't get me wrong. Doctrine is absolutely important. There is no doubt that Paul taught that it's important. But it isn't doctrine for doctrine's sake. But there is a purpose. And the purpose for which Paul taught is that what you believe should drive how you live. That's the purpose. What you believe determines how you live your life. And so we find here, with this statement that Paul makes, is that there's no place in Christianity or the kingdom of God for what is often titled the carnal Christian. And thankfully, I believe in this body, this is not something that we likely struggle with trying to uh, you know, fight against. Carnal Christianity is something we know. There's nobody here that would dispute that there's no place for that. But what we must also understand is that there's no room in Christianity for what could also be called the lukewarm Christian. What is the so-called lukewarm Christian? It is the individual who merely tries to skate by, as it were. The one who's okay with just a little, he's okay with mediocrity and content with going through the motions of religion. He's the one that has little zeal. And we all know Christ's disdain for lukewarmness. We read in Revelation 3, 15 through 16, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Do we have the same disdain for lukewarmness? the type of lukewarmness that can so easily and at various times creep into our life, do we have disdain for that? Or do we find ourselves content with mediocrity and content with just a little bit of holiness? I feel that, I believe that, and I've seen it even in my own life at times, that we are far too comfortable with lukewarmness. We must not allow ourselves to be lulled into spiritual lethargy or spiritual lukewarmness as we await our consummated arrival in the kingdom of God. The Christian life is not a stagnant life. Rather, it is an active, obedient life. There is work to be done, a life of holiness and worship to be lived and sanctification to be pursued. And it is to these practical duties of the Christian life that Paul now turns his attention to, starting here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and really going all the way up to chapter 15, verse 13. But even more specifically, it is in these first two verses of chapter 12 that Paul provides what we could identify as a summary statement of what is going to follow. It's a summary statement as to how our life should be lived before he dives into the more specific details from verse 3 onwards. And what we see in this summary statement is the duty of the Christian, the means provided, and the ultimate purpose. And so those are our points for this afternoon. The duty, the means, and the purpose. Having in the first 11 chapters laid out, as I have said, those glorious theological truths concerning the gospel and what God has done, Paul now points the brethren in Rome and also by extension us to the duty of the Christian. The responsibility as to how the Christian's life ought to now be lived as a result of these truths. 
And he does so by explicitly appealing to what he exposited in doctrinal form. Namely, the mercies of God. We read in verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. He doesn't threaten the dangers of not walking in a manner pleasing to God, and he doesn't put forth the severity of God's judgment as the impetus behind why they should present their bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Instead, he draws their attention to the mercies of God. So as to have these mercies contemplated and meditated on such that it would drive them forth in their duty of living as a sacrifice. We see this type of approach elsewhere in Paul's letters. For example, in Colossians 3.12, Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved... Because you have been chosen, because you're holy and beloved, here's what you ought to do. What does he say? He says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And so you see that, well, because of this, because you're chosen, here's what you do. So it is by the mercies of God, or it could even be rendered because of the mercies of God, that we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Paul sets forth the mercies of God not as the conduit by which he makes his appeal, but rather as the very basis and foundation of the Christian's duty. It is the contemplation of the mercies of God, his saving, saving, electing love, his redemption that has been both accomplished and applied that must lead us to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. This is the appropriate and even the necessary response to the mercies of God. And while this phrase, present your bodies, is not strictly in the imperative, meaning it's not constructed with the typical imperatival form in the Greek, nonetheless, most commentators agree that based on the context and the injunction that is being given, it acts as an imperative and it takes the force of a command. Therefore, the exhortation here given by Paul It's not a recommendation or something that is only for really devout Christians. But it is something that all of us must do. Every single one of us. You name the name of Christ, this is what you ought to do. So what does this language of presenting our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God mean? What is being conveyed here? Well, first we are confronted with sacrificial imagery here in verse 1. Sacrifice is something that has always been part of and necessary for worship and fellowship with God ever since sin entered the world. This is what we see throughout the Old Testament starting in Genesis 3. However, this Old Testament system of sacrifices and ceremonies has certainly been done away with in Christ. And therefore, as a result, sacrifices are no longer needed for our acceptance with God, but rather they're now offered in light of what God has done for us. It's what now pours forth from us as we consider His mercies. It should be the natural response, just immediate response 
Therefore, we see sacrificial language throughout the New Testament as a representation of the duty of the Christian. It's not that sacrifice has gone away, but that the purpose and manner of sacrifice has changed. What we now offer is not a literal sacrifice, but spiritual sacrifices. These New Testament spiritual sacrifices, they're shown forth in various ways. For example, uh, in Hebrews uh, 13, 15 through 16, what we see there is a sacrifice of praise. He says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Why are we giving thanks to his name? Because of what he did. Because of what he's done for us. And he says, do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. There are also monetary sacrifices. This is what we see in Philippians 4.18. There Paul says, But I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And that is the same language we see here in Romans 12.1, that we would be acceptable. It's an acceptable, well-pleasing sacrifice to God that we offer in how we live our life. And that's the example we have in this passage before us. To present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice. This is not the first time that we have seen this language of presenting ourselves. Uh, Paul uses this language earlier. If you want, uh, please turn over to Romans chapter 6. We see this there as well. It is here that we see a close parallel between the present your bodies of Romans 12.1 and what we read in chapter 6 as the present themselves and to present their members. This should sound familiar because the exhortation is the same. That in light of their union with Christ, they should now no longer walk in bondage to sin, but rather they should walk in newness of life as we see in verse 4. And so as a result of this union, here is how they should present their bodies. We see this in, in verses 12 and 13. He says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. A little bit further in verse 19 we see it again. He says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. The thrust behind presenting our bodies is not just something that is physical in nature, as if we're merely just no longer or merely just presenting our body physically as a sacrifice, as it were. No, it's far more reaching than just this physical aspect. It certainly involves our body. That's a given, but it involves more than that. It involves our whole being. It involves our mind, our intellect. It involves the totality of who we are, the totality of our life. It is not just part of ourselves that we are to present, 
but the whole of who we are, every aspect of our life. The presenting of our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice knows no bounds. There's no, okay, I've reached this point, I'm no longer presenting myself as a living sacrifice. Our lives are no longer our own. We were bought with a price and therefore we must glorify God with our body. We must present our bodies as a sacrifice. Our lives are now devoted to living for Christ in any way necessary. We should be able to say with Paul that for us to live is Christ. Full stop. That's it. For us to live is Christ. We know that to die is gain. But do we fully understand and realize that to live is Christ? Is for me to live Christ? Is for you to live Christ? Is for us collectively to live Christ? This was something Paul certainly understood. As we know, he said it of himself. But this is not only something that he said. He actually lived this. And he not only exhorted others to present their bodies as a sacrifice, but he did it as well. He was continually offering himself up as a sacrifice. Such that in Philippians 2.17, we read, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice with you all, and I share my joy with you. He truly gave himself as a sacrifice to the Lord being continually poured out. Do we do this? Do we give ourselves continually to the Lord? But notice as well how we're to present our bodies. There are three adjectives used here to present our bodies. Living, holy, and acceptable. So we're to be a living sacrifice. There are some who take the position that the idea of what is, that is being conveyed here is that we were previously dead and now we're alive and so we're a living sacrifice, just as we even read in, in, in Romans 6. And therefore they conclude that this is what it means to be a living sacrifice. And it is true, prior sacrifices were alive and then they were killed and we were dead and now we're alive. There's no denying that. We certainly walk in the newness of life. However, in the context of this passage, and as this verse is structured, the adjective living modifies the word sacrifice and not our bodies. And as a result, this would therefore imply that the nature of our sacrifice is not a one-time act. It's living in the sense that it is continual. It is throughout the whole of our life. It is our duty to continually present our bodies as a living sacrifice for as long as we live. There's no bowing out after 5 or 10 or 15 years of service. There's no cruising in to retirement and saying, okay, I did this and I'm just going to kick back. No, it's a continual sacrifice all the way up to the point to when the Lord calls us home. Whatever point that may be, that is going to be varying points for each of us. But until then, we're to live as a living sacrifice. Secondly, we are to be a holy sacrifice. Quite simply, this describes the fundamental character 
of our sacrifice. There is no doubt that we have been made holy by the regenerating, cleansing work of the Spirit in us. But what is also in view here is that we are a sacrifice that is set apart for God. And therefore, we're committed to His purposes, committed to living a life of sacrificial dedication and devotion to Him. It's no longer seeking our own desires. And it is this type of sacrifice, one that is living and holy, that is acceptable to God. We don't manufacture what is acceptable to God and what isn't. He tells us what is acceptable to Him. And what is acceptable to Him is that we continually offer ourselves, continually present ourselves, set apart for Him. And whatever that may entail, whatever He has for any of us, it's that we're set apart for Him. But it is also a type of sacrifice that is our spiritual service. This is what we see in the very last part of verse 1. Paul says, which is your spiritual service of worship? This final phrase has led to many opinions as to what is being said here and even some level of complication as to how the word should be translated. And the reason is because Paul doesn't use the typical Greek word for spirit when we read, at least in the NASB, spiritual service. Some commentators note that if Paul wanted to specifically say spiritual service, he would have done so by using the Greek word pneumatikane. But as it is, he uses the Greek word logikane. So what gives? Why use a word that we only see one other time in the New Testament? And it's 1 Peter 2.5 when he talks about you know, longing for that pure milk or that spiritual milk of the word. This is a word that's used only one other time. Why use that word? What is behind it? Well, the common use of this Greek word contains the idea of that which is reasonable or rational. And so what is being conveyed is that this worship that we offer isn't just merely this spiritual aspect or spiritual sacrifice in the sense of something may be disconnected from us, but it's a word that even goes deeper. It goes further. Uh, this last phrase could be rendered uh, that which is your reasonable or which is your rational service of worship. In fact, if you look in the margins of your Bible, many of them likely indicate either of those two words. It's not that this isn't spiritual worship, but that the word used here has a deeper reach. It speaks to the substance of our worship, the thoroughness of our worship. We're not just mindlessly going through how we worship God. There needs to be a thoroughness. It's not mindlessly putting ourselves forward as a sacrifice as if we're just some robot doing what we're programmed to do. But there needs to be engagement. And as I said earlier, it involves the totality of who we are and therefore includes our mind and our intellect. It describes in some sense the foundational nature of this sacrifice. It is worship that is genuine, worship that is thought out, worship that is informed. And that as a result of being informed, as a result of being thought out, 
It includes and involves our action, how we live. It's not just fill ourselves with knowledge and learn about God and then do nothing else. And so what we must understand in light of this is that it is a comprehensive of a life of worship. That is really what we are offering is a life of worship, a life lived out in worship before the Lord every day, His all-seeing eye, everything we do, everything we think, everything we say, seeking to be a sacrifice for Him. And the fact that this is continually uh, offered emphasizes that it extends to all areas of our life. And therefore, it logically follows that our worship and how we present our bodies and live our lives is, there's, there's no restriction. It is not worship that is merely restricted to one day of the week. This isn't a command to simply present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice just on Sunday. Remember, to live as Christ. It's not to live as Christ on Sunday. It's to live as Christ every day. And so it's not just simply show up on Sunday and fellowship and serve and then go and live as we please the rest of the week. But just to be clear, this shouldn't and doesn't devalue our corporate gatherings on Sundays. But instead it lifts up and even emphasizes the significance of the other six days of the week. That every day is important. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that there's truly no separation between secular and sacred. The worship we now offer is not confined to one location and one day at a specified time. Rather, it pierces into our everyday life. God wants all of us at all times and all places always. Do we live that way? It is a total commitment and devotion unto God It extends to our work, our relationships, and our activities daily. In each of these categories of life that we find ourselves, whatever it may be, work, recreation, family, and in whatever stage of life we are in, young, middle-aged, older, we are to present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice to God, which is not only acceptable to him but this is our reasonable rational worship but how are we to do this well in verse 2 paul continues his instruction as to how this is to be done it is there we read and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind now there are some who view this conform transform command as a separate instruction apart from the exhortation that we just looked at in verse 1. In other words, what they see is the first injunction of presenting your bodies, and then they see a completely separate command of uh, do not be conformed, but be transformed. So if you were to look at the NIV, for example, it doesn't actually translate the and that is present in the Greek in verse 2. It just jumps right into do not be conformed, as if it's a, a list of Present your bodies, don't be conformed, be transformed, and so forth. However, I believe that given that Paul is 
you know, issuing a summary statement rather than a list of commands. This is not just something else that we're to do in addition to presenting our bodies, but it's how we're to actually present our bodies. You cannot present your body if you're being conformed to the world. You can't do it. You must be transformed to be able to do that. And so I believe what he is giving us is the means by which this is done. And he does so by both a negative command of do not be conformed and a positive command of be, conform, uh, be transformed. This aspect of the negative command is um, interesting. Paul knew who he was writing to. He was writing to saints who still lived in this present evil age. This is an age that mercilessly seeks to shape us into its pattern and into its mold. Any of us here can testify to that to the constant bombardment we face of the culture around us and pressing in on us to conform us to their image. And so there is certainly a need here for the negative command of do not be conformed to this world. But we see this same command in this language elsewhere. For example, in 1 Peter 1.14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Also in all your behavior, right? So that speaks of the the sanctification that we are to pursue. Scripture is clear. Those who are in union with Christ are not to look like the world. They're not to be conformed to the world's pattern. Or even more literally, it's do not be conformed to this age. We are not of this age. We are of the age to come. We, we live in this age, but we're not of this age. And so this certainly brings to mind the aspect of where we truly reside. Where we truly reside. We're no longer in this age or of this age. Uh, therefore, we ought not to be conformed to this age or defined by this age. This is an age of darkness, an evil age, an age whose desires are fleeting and ever-changing, an age that is passing away. But we are citizens of the everlasting kingdom of God. And as a result, our thoughts are not to be governed and shaped, molded and patterned. Whatever adjective you want to use, it's not to be according to this age. Why am I specifically emphasizing our thoughts as to that which shouldn't be conformed. Don't we need to ensure that our actions also are not conformed to this age? Well, certainly. That's that's absolutely. Yes, of course, we should not have our actions be conformed to this age. But what we ultimately see in this verse is a contrast between being conformed to this age and being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so there is a comparison of thought patterns. The thought pattern of this age and the mind that we ought to now have in Christ. And so that puts the primary focus on how we think. And this makes sense. The way we think and what we believe tends to reflect who we are and what we do. And so, by default, the actions will follow the thoughts. Therefore, we are not to allow our mind and the thoughts that flow therefrom to be guided by this age. Rather than being conformed to this age, we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so we have to ask and examine ourselves. 
Are we allowing ourselves to be conformed to this age? Are we allowing this age to shape and mold the way that we think and the views that we hold? And I think if we're honest and we truly look at it, this can happen far more easily than we may realize. It is the subtle things that start to creep in. The old man starts to rise up. We begin to grumble. We become bitter. We become discontent. We start to see the glitz and glamour of the world and become desirous of those things, envious of what others have around us. And next thing you know, our thoughts are slowly being conformed to this age. We need to be diligent to be on guard against such thought patterns that creep in and seek to conform us. And this needs to be done by renewing our mind. And so this leads us to the positive command. He doesn't only give us the negative, he gives us the positive. It's not just stop doing this and then don't do anything else. We have to do something else. It's often what we see with the whole put off, put on. The concept of transformation and renewal is certainly something we see throughout Scripture, and it follows after the Spirit wrought renewal at our conversion. We are to walk in the newness of life according to the new man. Our, our renewal follows our repentance. A repentance is a change of mind. It's a complete switch from how we used to think to now how we think. And so this transforming aspect of our mind, this renewing of our mind follows our repentance. It follows what the Spirit has done in us. And we see this even in Ephesians 4, 20-24. There we read, the former manner of life, uh, sorry, uh, there we read, but you did not learn Christ this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, You will lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And here it is. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So it's as a result of the Spirit's work in us that our mind can now be transformed. The mind that we see in Romans chapter 1, that was futile in their speculations and completely depraved and and even handed over, can now be renewed and it must be renewed. There is a complete reversal now. The mind that couldn't understand the ways of God and to know His will and to ascertain what He would have can now do that. And it must do that. But there are a few characteristics related to this process of transformation, this renewal that we must consider. First, it too is continual, much like the presenting of our bodies. We will constantly be in the process of transformation. This is reflected in the fact that the verb transformed is in the present tense form. And therefore, as a result, reflects something that is to be done continually. And the continual nature is necessary because the fact of the matter is what we need to know is that there's no neutrality. There's no neutrality. If you're not being transformed by the renewal of your mind, you're being conformed to the way that this world thinks. It's not, okay, I'm not renewing and I'm just kind of stagnant. No, we've all experienced those times in which we're not renewing and how quickly our thoughts go the way of the world. And so it's as simple as that. If you're not transforming, you're conforming. 
The, no, the, the minute we're no longer praying, the minute we're no longer diving into God's Word, meditating on His Word, in fellowship with the brethren, among the body, the minute we let up, the minute we let our guard down, we can easily just, it's not just, oh, we move to here. No, we start going this way. And therefore, we must continually be seeking to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It takes action. It's not just going to magically happen. Secondly, this is a synergistic work. It is a work that is both wrought by the Holy Spirit and ourselves. For those of you that love Greek out there, the construction of this verb is not only present, as we previously noted, but it's a passive imperative. A passive imperative. Passive meaning it's something that's done to us. Imperative meaning that it's something that we also ought to do. And so what we ultimately have before us in this process of transformation is that of progressive sanctification. We don't save ourselves. That's monergistic. That's the work that, uh, that is done to us. But progressive sanctification, that's synergistic. We have a responsibility to do that. We see the synergistic nature of this work in Scripture. For example, in Philippians 2.13, Paul acknowledges that it is God who is at work both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He is stirring us up. And this process of transformation by the renewal of our mind is part of that greater transformation that we see in 2 Corinthians 3.18. There Paul says, But we all with unveiled face... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. You see, what we see here is that the aspect of being transformed by the renewal of our mind falls under this overall aspect of being conformed to His image. But this word transformed here, of being conformed to His image, it's only in the passive. It is something that is being done to us Through His Spirit, He is conforming us, transforming us to His image. But at the same time, just prior to the verse we just read, Philippians 2.12, we see this. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so we see there is no allowance for simply sitting back and waiting to be transformed. As it relates to this transformation, there's no place for the popular phrase, let go and let God. There's no place for that when it comes to progressive sanctification. There are many things that, yes, we need to leave at the, 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 the foot of His throne and not to be anxious and not to be worrisome over. We're to trust His sovereignty. But when it comes to progressive sanctification, it's, oh, I'm not just going to take my hands off the wheel and just whatever happens, happens. No. We need to be active. We have a responsibility to fulfill. There is... Zero doubt the Lord will be faithful to do what He needs to do. That's not going to be the issue. But by God's grace, we need to ensure that we are continually seeking to renew our mind. And finally, this involves... um, This is the the third aspect of as far as what it involves. Uh, This process involves immersing ourselves and saturating ourselves with the Word of God. It's a very simple point. Saturate ourselves with the Word of God. 
Our pattern of thinking that was once shaped by the world is now to be shaped, developed, and renewed by God's word. And this is what we need to continually and thoroughly inform ourselves as to the way that we ought to think by diving into the word of God. It is not just simply going to happen, but we have to actively inform ourselves as to how we are to think. What does he require of us? And it is this continual renew that ultimately leads us to our third and final point, and that is the purpose. We read at the end of verse 2, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There is therefore a practical purpose behind renewing our mind, and it centers on proving what the will of God is. Everybody wants to know what the will of God is. You know what the will of God is? His word. We know it's our sanctification, but it's his word. It's what he has laid out for us in scripture. But this is certainly interesting language, this this aspect of proving what the will of God is. How are we to understand, like, proving that? Well, we see this same root word used in at least two other places. Uh, which will help to shed light on how we're to understand this. First, Philippians 1, 9 through 10, where we read, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That word approve is the same Greek root that we have in our uh, verse today. In the context here, Paul prays that the Philippians would uh, love would abound in real knowledge and all discernment. Why? There's a purpose. The purpose is that they may approve the things that are excellent. And this idea of approving the things that are excellent carries with it not deciding between good or bad. We know that. But it's that they would know what is good and best. Or what is best and excellent. In other words, Paul wanted them to understand how they could best love each other. We know we shouldn't do bad. That's not the issue that's on the table here. The issue is, is what is the best thing that we should do? But we see this same idea even earlier in Romans 2, verses 17 and 18. This same word. There we read, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will... And approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. You see, the possession of the law provided the Jews not with the ability of simply knowing right and wrong, but of truly approving things that are essential. Those things that are superior is what is in mind there. And it's the same idea behind proving what the will of God is. It is not proving... The will of God as to whether it's good or bad. We know that all that God does is good. Even in this verse, it is referred to as that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so that's obvious. But to prove the will of God involves knowing His will. It is not merely just being knowledgeable, though. But it's understanding that will lead to the intention to walk according to His will. Because you agree that it is right and it's what's truly best. And see, so we must renew our mind to prove what the will of God is, to know what is best, to see what is best, to agree what is best, and then to go do what is best. 
That's what's in my, that's what's in, in view here. This is what it is, this is what renewing our mind is to lead to and why it is essential to saturate ourselves with His Word. As we are continually transformed by the renewing of our mind, we will, be, we will better understand His will for us and how we ought to live on a daily basis. And then what does this lead to? It leads to ultimately being able to better present ourselves as a sacrifice that is living and holy and acceptable to Him, which is our reasonable worship unto Him. And so this is a circular process. We present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice. We renew our mind. We better understand His will and therefore walk according to His will. And then guess what we do? We do it all over again. We present ourselves even better as a better living sacrifice because we now better understand how we ought to walk. And then we renew our mind. And for our whole life, it's this circular process that is upward in motion through our whole life as we're being more and more conformed to His image. That is what is in view in these verses. That of our progressive sanctification, that of our duty to pursue holiness. And we know the means to do it. It is to be in His Word, to be saturated with His Word so that we would better understand what He requires of us. May the Lord grant us the grace to diligently set our minds to do this. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask, we acknowledge first how often we fall short, how often we sin, how often we don't do even the things that we see here in these two verses, how easily we conform in our thoughts to this age. And we're not instead renewing our mind according to your word and and therefore we are not always best presenting ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice oh lord would you forgive us would you be merciful to us would you cleanse us and would you give us holy desires that we would do what we are commanded to do oh lord you have done so much for us You have done so much for us. You have granted us eternal life. You have wiped away the debt that we had that no man could wipe away but God alone. You have wiped away that debt. Oh, may we live as a sacrifice. Would our life be an offering unto you? In your name, amen.